Hello and welcome to the Learn About ME podcast series. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host Ruth Richardson and I work for Action for ME, a national charity supporting people of all ages with ME. Today's episode topic is Learn About ME and Decode ME, the latest in our series of podcasts. All of our podcasts are available on Buzzsprout and Spotify, and we are funded by the Scottish Government to deliver a medical education project. This project aims to increase the confidence of health and social care professionals in diagnosing and supporting patients with the health condition myalgic encephalomyelitis, known as ME or ME-CFS. Alongside developing a series of podcasts, we are encouraging medical and social care professionals to complete an online module worth one CPD point to enhance their knowledge of ME. You can find out more and complete the module by visiting the Action for ME website. ME is a long-term fluctuating neurological condition affecting an estimated 21,000 adults and children in Scotland. And today we will focus on an extremely exciting new research project launched in September 2022. Decode ME is the world's largest ME-CFS study and aims to find the genetic causes of why people become ill with ME-CFS. The research is funded by the Medical Research Council and the National Institute for Health Research. The study is being led by Professor Chris Ponting at the University of Edinburgh and places people with ME-CFS absolutely at the heart of the study, including a steering group of people with the illness, their carers and associated charities. So I'm delighted to be joined today by three guests to tell us more about this study. Andy Devereaux-Cook, Sonia Chaudhry and Professor Chris Ponting. And here is my conversation with them. Well, firstly, welcome to all of you. It'd be great to hear more about your roles in the project. So Andy, if I can get you to introduce yourself first. Hi, I'm Andy Devereaux-Cook. Um, been a patient for about 40 years or so. I'm part of the management team for Decode ME and also I'm part of the PPI public and patient involvement steering group on the project as well. And Sonia, I know you're the CEO of Action for ME, but what's your role within this project? Hi, I'm the I'm a co-investigator on the project along with Andy and with Chris. I chair the management group and I also work with Andy on the patient and public involvement group and also in the marketing and communications group. I'm a human geneticist at the University of Edinburgh at the Medical Research Council Human Genetics Unit and with Andy and with Sonia I'm a co-investigator of the Decode ME project. Well, we're all really excited to hear more about this project today and, of course, how people can get involved. But firstly, this is the biggest study on ME-CFS to date. And why is genetic research into this condition so important, and particularly research at this scale? Genetics is fantastic at looking at diseases for which we know very little. And that's because we can look at all possible outcomes. Uh, We could look across the whole genome and all possible Uh, ways in which that uh, genome could lend itself to predisposition of uh, people being diagnosed with ME. And so when we know very little, and that's the the case with ME, we we don't know how to properly diagnose it. We don't know what the causes are of uh, ME, CFS. Um, And when we know very little, then we can uh, use genetics as a tool uh, with which to ask not just is a particular thing going wrong, but what is going wrong. Just as long as we have enough people in our study, 
then we'll be able to have the power in our study to find out these very important things. And what do we already know about ME? And more importantly, what don't we know that this project might help us to find out in time? So what do we know about ME? Well, there have been many, many studies over many years. And when you read the scientific literature on ME-CFS, what I think is immediately striking is that when an advance is made, that you look again at the literature and unfortunately you don't see that that finding, that discovery has been replicated in any study. So that means we know very little, actually. Very little that we can um, hold as being a productive line of investigation in the future. And so why is that? Why might it be that um, we haven't really been making much progress? Well, it's a complicated disease. I think it's a fluctuating disease. It has many symptoms and we don't know very much at all about it. So this is why we need larger studies. We need studies that have very many individuals so that we can tease apart the different contributions that have been made to people's illnesses and we can identify the genetic predispositions. We understand that genetics isn't everything, but it does provide us with an ability, because DNA doesn't change over your lifetime, to investigate causes. And here the cause is why people don't get better often after an infection, but they have these um, recurrent symptoms that often last the whole of the people's lives. And Emmy, unlike other conditions, has uh, suffered from a lack of research over time and therefore we know very little about it. Sonia and Andy, what is the impact on people living with the condition around not having as much research as others? So speaking as a patient myself, basically I, I find myself with no treatment that works for me. So NICE, who, who recently have just changed their guidelines on MECFS, previously they, they recommended graded exercise and CBT as curative treatments. Now, NICE, during the guideline process, looked at all the evidence and found that actually, unfortunately, the evidence just wasn't there to support this. And that really chimes with the experience of the patient population. There are, of course, some people who do benefit from graded exercise following infection. Some people just take that much time longer to recover lot from an infection or any other cause of ME than your average person. For many people who have been ill, like me, for years and decades, graded exercise and CBT do not help. And the thing to emphasise here is that CBT that we're talking about isn't the supportive kind, which is useful in many conditions. For those many conditions, it's not seen as curative. It's not employed on the basis that, that it's going to cure them. So for me, the reason that I'm excited to be part of the Decode ME project is, as Chris has, has just explained, we're going to, going to be looking to find out, if we can, the causes, if there are any, on the genetic basis. This information would then serve as a launch pad towards it further investigations into uh, potential treatments and ones that, because of the size of our project, 
would have a solid base of evidence for them. Thank you, Andy. And you mentioned the recent changes to the NICE guideline. If anyone's interested in finding out more, we did a podcast on that a couple of episodes ago, so do tune in and listen to that one. Sonia, you've worked in this field for around 10 years now. So anything you want to add to what Andy said about the importance of finding out more about this condition that affects so many people? You know, we've heard how difficult it is and challenging it is for people with lived experience and their families. And, you know, there has been a real paucity of research. I think it's also important to recognise how hard and difficult it has been for healthcare professionals, social care professionals and others working with people with ME-CFS. We know that people want to be able to support their patients and their, their clients. We know that people want to be able to give answers and they've not been able to do either of those things in the main. And so it's been a very challenging environment for everybody. And I think what this study offers is the potential for us to transform that. And we want to be able to look back in years to come and to look at ME in a way that we might have looked at other diseases. You know, multiple sclerosis was a difficult disease illness to diagnose. People were not believed. They didn't get the support and care that they needed. And now they're taken very seriously and they're given treatments and there are new things being uncovered through through the science. We want that to be the same for ME. There are 250,000 people plus in the UK with ME who deserve that to be the case for them. Um, thank you for all of that. You can see there's a really, really clear reason why this study is so important. So let's hear more about it. But firstly, who are you looking for to take part in this project? And is there any particular criteria for people that you want to involve? We would love it if people who have been diagnosed by a health professional with ME, CFS, ME or CFS, uh, would participate in this study. If you're over 16 and you live in the United Kingdom, what we, we ask people to do is to go online to the CodeME website and take a questionnaire. And be, with those questions, we'll gain an enormous amount of information that is of huge value in understanding the lived experience of people from up and down the country. Secondly, some people, not all, because studies have criteria and some people will fall within those narrow criteria and some will not. Some people will then be asked to provide a DNA sample via their saliva. Um, we'll send out a kit. People can spit for science. And then that um, kit will come back to us in the, in the ordinary mail. We analyze the, the DNA that comes from that saliva sample and we compare it against people who have their data have already been collected up and down the country. And we can see whether individual DNA letters are more common or not in people with ME versus the, the, uh, the general population. And that is how we can shine a light as to where uh, in our chromosomes, on our DNA, are the, the issues that people uh, face and the causes that, that underlie people's ME. I'd also like to add that, again, part of my excitement for this study is that it is using criteria that often has been missing in previous studies that have claimed to be looking at MECFS. And that's quite a different thing to being given a diagnosis of MECFS. So like Chris has said, we're, we're looking to for anybody in the UK with an ME-CFS diagnosis to take part. But the criteria 
forms part of our questionnaire and is about selecting you know, a particular sample of people who will give us the clearest signal genetically. Again, for us to have this secure base to work from once we publish the results and for future researchers to then follow up as we certainly hope that they will do on what we what we find assuming we find something it's reassuring to know that there is that criteria embedded into the study equally it's good to recognize that there will be some people who will look to take part but will find that they don't go into phase two which is giving of the DNA sample. Naturally, that's going to lead to disappointment because the opportunity to take part in the study of this scale it, you know, doesn't come around every day and in fact has never existed for people with ME. But as Chris has stressed, their answers to the questionnaire are equally valid as anybody who uh, then goes on to donate a DNA sample. We've touched on the scale of this project and also the scientific rigour behind it and it must be a huge job you've got to find these thousands of people. So how are you finding people to take part in this project and what role can healthcare professionals in particular take to help support this? So we are undertaking a huge campaign. It's a large number of people that we want to recruit. And ideally, we'd want to recruit every single person in the UK with a diagnosis of MECFS. We have reached people through social media. We have reached people through the charities. We have reached people through our website who signed up for updates. We have reached people who aren't connected with members of the team and the charities currently through digital media. And we've had some PR media coverage as well, which has been hugely helpful in reaching people that aren't part of the current ME community, so may not have heard about the Decode ME study. But we still need to recruit a lot more. And there are many people that we're still not reaching. And healthcare professionals can play a crucial role in helping share information about the study to people that they know, people that they're working with, with colleagues who may know people with a diagnosis of ME-CFS. We are not recruiting through the NHS specifically. That's not part of our study and we do not have ethical approval to do that. So we don't have lots of leaflets and letters that we're sending out through surgeries and other healthcare professional settings um, because that's not the route that we are taking. However, on the website www.decodeme.org.uk, you can find a lot more information about the study. There's a frequently asked questions. There are also resources and leaflets that you can download. So we would really love it if healthcare professionals can become part of our study, become part of our team and help us reach those people with a diagnosis of MECFS that we're not yet reaching. Also, if there are people that you suspect have MECFS, support them in being able to access a diagnosis because if they are then diagnosed, then they too can become part of our study. I'd just like to add that we're also interested in recruiting people who have been diagnosed with ME-CFS following COVID-19 infection. We know that many healthcare professionals and people with um, a diagnosis of long COVID are finding it very difficult to work out, is it long COVID, is it ME-CFS? And indeed, Action for ME has been hearing from a number of people that are struggling to get a diagnosis. 
what we would say is that we you have to have a diagnosis of ME-CFS to participate in this study. But if you are finding it difficult to get a diagnosis, or indeed you're a healthcare professional and want more information about supporting somebody to get a diagnosis, then you can go to the charities like Action for ME and ME Association and utilise their resources. And can I add to that that the reason why we are not primarily uh, recruiting through the NHS well, there are two, two reasons. One is scale. We, we have to be in touch with tens of thousands of people up and down the country with, with ME. And the way to do that really is to generate a snowball-like effect so that um, through the media, uh, through podcasts like this, we get people talking about the, um, the disease of people's lived experience. And, and that ripples out and affects and informs so many people. And we can recruit via the uh, the website in the way that Sonia has, has just said. And secondly, we wanted to make sure that we reached a community that often doesn't use the NHS, particularly those who are very severely affected, ironically, that don't engage with the NHS for a whole variety of, of reasons. And we wanted to make sure that, that everyone had the opportunity to be involved and so you might say, well, you're, you're doing this via the Internet, so maybe those people can't be involved. But yes, we, we're making sure that they, people can be supported to complete the questionnaire by someone in the household or, or others. Down the phone line, we're supporting that. We ensure that people, if they wish to, they can do a paper questionnaire. So we're, we're really trying our best to ensure that we include as many people as possible. And we feel that felt that if we went down the NHS route, that we would have fewer people, we wouldn't have that snowball effect, and we wouldn't actually go out into all of the different um, parts of our uh, the ME community that we would wish uh, to access. So that's just to explain why. To pick up um, a point that, that Sonia made about speaking to people that you suspect have ME, every single person listening to this podcast is likely to know someone with ME within their social circle, within their family. And it may be as clear as that that person has an ME-CFS diagnosis. Or it may be that you're aware of somebody who just struggles to engage as much as anybody else, who, who struggles to take part in activities, social activities in your social group, you know, family gatherings. There may be somebody who just struggles to take part in, and remain engaged no matter how much they'd like to be. Reach out to that, that person. Just ask the question whether they're aware of the study, whether it applies to them. It may not. For every person who does that, it increases our chance of making this, this study even more successful. Throughout this podcast series, we've often come back to that idea of people with ME having to become their own experts on the condition because of a lack of knowledge or understanding amongst some health and care professionals. And I know this project puts the experience of patients and carers really at the heart, at the direct centre of this. It's known as public and patient involvement in research, but actually with this study, they've been co-leading and, and co-producing aspects of it. So firstly, can you tell us how patients have been involved and then why that's so important to research like this? So patients were involved right from the development of the study. So even before the funding was, was secured, patients were involved in basically looking ahead to how this study might be delivered, how this study might look. 
that was fed into the application process to the funders. And it, it should be noted that the involvement of of the patient community of whatever illness is being investigated is is becoming more and more desired by the funders in the projects that they fund. It was a real plus point to the application for that to be included. When the team were put together, I was brought on board to be part of the management team. And the, as I understand it, and perhaps Chris will correct me if I'm wrong, the way that uh, this study or the management of this study is structured is quite unusual for research studies. Typically, there's a there's a head honcho who, um, in this case, would normally be Chris, giving out the orders and ultimately taking all the responsibility. In this case, Chris has decided that the study would be better served by, rather than that single person being at the top, we have the three of us. The patient input into the study remains all the way through in that way. And then there are patients and their carers who are part of the team. The study is split into different delivery teams who, as the name suggests, deliver different aspects of the of the study. And we have patients and, and their carers involved in all the different aspects. And then, as was mentioned previously, we have the steering group, which consists of charity representatives um, who have been out there supporting our study, and we thank them for that as well. Uh, patients and their carers again. We have people involved in the design, the delivery, advising all the time about how best to design the questionnaire, for example, about how to word the questionnaire, how to simplify something so that somebody who is struggling with brain fog is more likely to be able to understand it and to be able to answer accurately, basically improving the study immeasurably. From a scientist's point of view, I mean, I've been trained as a human geneticist. I go deep on genetics. But why should I be considered to be an expert in a disease that I've got no lived experience of? That's the answer to the question, why is it that we have this joint uh, co-production model? Because I bring, hopefully, skills in human genetics and data analysis, etc. But I don't have the lived experience. But we have it aplenty with people who are involved in this project. And so, as Andy has said, there has been a measurable improvement in the questionnaire. may not be perfect, of course not, but it has, through sending it out to people and having responses and realising where we've made wrong assumptions and we've, we've corrected those, the questionnaire has improved enormously. So science has improved because of that. And secondly... Science will improve. The power of the study will improve because of the, the access that has been given to the project by people with lived experience through the snowball effect, through charities, through people who know one another through the MECFS network. So, so many people who then are participating. And that has led to what I think is a genuine partnership across science into the community and society, and we hope into the health service as well, so that Everyone can feel that this is, is not a project that lies simply here in the University of Edinburgh, but it lies across the country in people's living rooms as they fill out the form, they complete the questionnaire online, they send back their spit kits if they're offered them. It is a project for all of us so that we together can uh, try and do something to improve the lives of so many people up and down the country 
uh, for this devastating disorder. Well, it's been fantastic to hear about this study. So remind us again how people can take part, Sonia. So to take part, you need to go to the website, the Decodemi website, and register. Once you've registered, you'll be asked to complete a questionnaire. And that provides invaluable data. It's the largest data set of people with ME-CFS in the world, and it's growing daily. Some people will then be invited to provide a saliva sample. This is done by um, spitting into a tube, which gets packaged into a special box. It goes into a post box, and then that goes to the centre where the saliva and DNA will be processed. That will then be analysed by Chris and the team at Edinburgh University. And we're really keen for as many people with a diagnosis of ME-CFS to take part as possible. And I think it's also important to note there may be healthcare professionals who have ME themselves that may be listening or ME people with ME in their surgeries and in their teams. So you can help us spread the word that way too. And in regard to the questionnaire, I mentioned earlier about, about the level of patient and carer input into the questionnaire to make it as simple as possible. And there's the various ways of completing it. Obviously, for, for logistical reasons, we'd like the vast majority of our participants to complete it online. But it's important to note that you can do it in stages. So you can get as far as you can uh, with the resources that you have at the time. And you can then leave the site. Your progress is saved at every new page that you go to. And you're then able to come back to the site when you ha- again have enough resources to continue your progress. And we've had patients reporting that they've they've taken three or four goes at pacing themselves through the questionnaire. Because obviously one of the... Uh, reasons for designing the study in this way is that we we tried as much as possible to limit the potential harm to those patients who are perhaps eager to participate and push themselves a bit too much. If you need to take your time going through the questionnaire, if you need to pause it, come back to it, then that's possible. And f- for those who whose severity is such that they can't take part in that way. Again, as was mentioned earlier, we have phone support so people can fill it in uh, giving answers over the phone and we do have the op- the uh, option of a paper questionnaire. So if you know using a screen is not possible due to the severity of your illness, you're able to just uh, let us know that you'd like to take part using a paper questionnaire, which we obviously then send to you. You fill it in in your own time and then once you've completed it, send it back to us. We take data protection really seriously. So we, in the University of Edinburgh, we hold the questionnaire data, we hold the DNA data, and we've gone through so many hoops to make sure that we have protected that data to an incredible high level. Not everyone wants to consent to this study. That's absolutely fine. But one of the things that we try and make sure at that consent process is people realise how seriously we take data protection. Thank you all for joining today. I'm Ruth Richardson and this has been the Learn About ME and Decode ME podcast. I would like to thank our project partners, ME Action Scotland, the ME Association and the 25% ME Group for their support in creating the podcast for this project and also all of our listeners for taking the time to listen today. 
This podcast was produced by Zoe Anderson. You can find out more about the work of our partners, ME Action Scotland are on Twitter or visit meaction.net. It's meassociation.org.uk for their website and also 25megroup.org to visit the 25% group. And you can find out more about Action for ME on our website, actionforme.org.uk or at Action for ME on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast, rate it on your favourite podcast app and do tune in next time.